Thanks for downloading the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference podcast. The conference took place in University College Dublin on the 2nd and 3rd of September 2011 and saw over 50 speakers from Ireland and beyond come together to share their ideas in an interdisciplinary forum. In association with HistoryHub.ie, the majority of the papers are available for podcasting via the HistoryHub.ie website and on iTunes. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Dr. Tai Gohanachan, a senior lecturer in the School of History and Archives, University College Dublin. His major research interests centre around the religious history of early modern Europe, with a particular emphasis on Catholicism in Ireland and in Hungary. His paper is entitled Violating and Restoring the Identity of the Dead, Politics and Dead Bodies in the Aphorismical Discovery of Treasonable Faction. So in this paper I'd like to attempt two principal things. First, to examine briefly the manner in which a certain politics of dead bodies was crucial to the formation of early modern Ireland. By that I mean the way in which the acceptance of the need for the English state and its opponents to inflict death on a wide scale became accepted as a basic aspect of political thought in Ireland. And having sketched this general background, I'd like to turn my attention to a particular text, the aphorismical discovery of treasonable faction, and to consider how it portrays two particular instances of battlefield slaughter and to ponder the significance of the different treatment it accords them. In comparison to early modern Britain, early modern Ireland abounded in violent death. The Tudor conquest, however unplanned, ultimately resulted in appalling levels of mortality, particularly in Munster in the 1580s and in Ulster in the last years of Elizabeth's reign, where perhaps up to a quarter of the population perished, chiefly from famine due to the deliberate targeting of foodstuffs. Similar levels of mortality also occurred in the middle decades of the following century, especially in the period 1649 to 53, when the impact of the Cromwellian conquest and accompanying pestilence on a country already exhausted by eight years of warfare was extreme. That the politics of conquest required this politics of death is a point which, until relatively recently, has been too easily elided in Irish historiography. But such violence was a fundamental factor in shaping the contours of 16th and 17th century Ireland. Early modern Britain was certainly no stranger to violent death, not least at the hands of the law. This was an exceptional period in the history of the common law, which saw its ferocious penalties against felonies rigorously implemented in a manner which had begun to fade to some degree by the later 17th century. But if English social control was articulated through the mechanism of stocks and gallows, in Ireland the implementation of law assumed a new character. It was one of the unhappy coincidences of Irish history that the era of replacement of Gaelic by common law synchronised with such a period of legal rigour. Consequently, the English administrators who came to Ireland in the late 16th and early 17th century and found themselves equipped with wide powers of martial law above and beyond even the considerable powers to inflict death as a punishment which common law provided, accepted the weapon which had come to their hands with notable alacrity. When such stringency accelerated rather than halted the slide into rebellion, many responded with a call for even more extreme measures, culminating in scorched earth campaigns in the later Elizabethan period and horrendous numbers of fatalities. As has been noted in the past, even the most rigorous could be affected by the scale of Irish difference. The anatomies of death, whom Spencer recorded as the product of Grey de Wilton's campaign in Munster during the 1580s, evidently exercised a ghastly fascination for the poet, their death in life blurring the normally rigid boundaries between two opposed conditions. Fines Morrison has also been considered in a similar light as a witness, like Spencer, intellectually committed to the necessity of widespread death, but emotionally infected by its enactment. And it was Elizabeth's revulsion from the politics of death in its narrow sense which ultimately resulted in Grey's recall and a more emollient strategy under the leadership of Ormond employed in the mop-up phase of the Desmond Rebellion during the 1580s. 
Ultimately, however, the vindication of the unitary sovereignty of the English Crown demanded recourse to similar tactics, and by the later stage of the Nine Years' War, uh, they were once again given free reign. Indeed, in the wake of years of failure against Hugh O'Neill, Mountjoy, Chichester and Carew seem to have, con- con- <coughs> seem to have consciously emphasised the success of their savage scorched earth war tactics in order to convince the Privy Council to keep funding their efforts. Rather than attempting to disguise the brutalities attendant on such a mode of warfare, the details of indiscriminate mortality were consciously presented as concrete proofs of political success. The casualisation of violence in 16th century Ireland inevitably wrought alterations among the native population. If endemic warfare had characterised late medieval Ireland, it had generally been conducted at a fairly low level. The acquisition of cattle rather than the mass killing of antagonists had represented its principal feature. But the militarisation of Gaelic Ireland, both a coincidence with, but also increasingly a product of, the expansion of the reach of the English state, resulted in a deepening savagery of warfare among Gael and Gael, as well as between Gael and Gaul. Shane O'Neill's ravaging of Ulster in the 1560s seems to be an exceptional in its savagery, and by arming the lower orders of his lordship, he deepened the level of participation in violence. By the 1590s, Red Hugh O'Donnell in Tyrconnell seemed to have dispensed with the traditional, traditional advisory corda of the Lord and rested his lordship on outright military force to a greater extent than his predecessors. His attitude towards contemners of his authority was also draconian and he earned the sobriquet of the legal executioner, so fiercely did he exact revenge against pre- criminal breaches of his authority. And Neil Garav O'Donnell's famous description of his rights as lord over the population of Tirchunnel bears similar witness to the power of the right to execute as an attribute of lordship on the cusp of the 16th and 17th centuries in Gaelic Ulster. Nor was the pale unaffected. That something of a 1916 effect resulted from the administration's exaggerated reaction to the Bolton class rebellion seems highly probable. Certainly in the aftermath of the executions which follow this insurrection, an increased attachment to recusancy becomes visible. But the judicial murder of Nicholas Nugent by Robert Dillon in 1582 was also a sign of a changing dispensation. This particular dead body had a special resonance within the politics of the Pale, for it marked the use of state institutions not to restrain but to prosecute familial feud and contributed to the deepening of the rift between the administration and the local community. In the wake of the completion of the Tudor Conquest in 1603, the fact that almost four decades without any significant military confrontation on the island actually seems to have primed an explosion of communal violence in 1640. One can probably be attributed to two principal factors. The first was the conjoined process of triumph and failure on the part of the common law. The replacement of Gaelic and Gaelicised codes of law throughout the island has been, replaced, has been presented as one of the most significant changes of the entire tumultuous early modern period in Ireland. But 1641 revealed that this apparent administrative success concealed a profound failure on a cultural level. Despite its harshness, the evidence suggests that even the less advantaged social orders of England maintained a genuine respect for common law. Sir John Davies' opinion that the common law was organic to English civilisation enjoyed widespread support in England. The law was seen to act as a bastion against the arbitrary powers of nobles and the socially superior, even when it conferred upon them frightening powers of retribution against felony. 1641 suggests the widespread failure of this aspect of law in Ireland, principally because the benefits which the new English community had derived from competing under its aegis with a native population ill-versed in the new legal framework that state patronage and corruption further loaded the device, <coughs> loaded the dice in their favour merely compounded the problem. The social discontent expressed in the violence against the newly immigrant population in 1641 
was a public manifestation of rejection of the legal processes of the past four decades, for these have been seen to deliver not equity and justice, but discrimination and fraud. And I think there's a parallel here with the, the, the previous paper with Cromwell's insistence that these were legal processes. Fusing with this discontent was the sharpening sectarian division in the island. Not the least of the problems facing the religious intellectuals of early modern Europe was an amorphously diffused unwillingness to accept that salvation was only possible in the context of membership of the true church. Every situation where Christians found themselves living in relatively neighbourly contact with individuals of different faith generated resistance to the idea that people of evident worth and virtue but different religion were necessarily damned. Such an attitude ultimately played an important role in ensuring the religious partition of the continent rather than its reunification under the banner of one section of the Christian faith. Yet in a society such as Ireland, with festering divisions between communities, religious-derived notions of salvation only within the one true church were potentially explosive, for they provided the justification for the abolition of the normal bonds of neighbourly behaviour when the opportunity presented itself in 1641. The indignities which were visited on the bodies of Protestants, from stripping to murder, were the physical enactment of this sense of rejection of the legal framework and the embracing of religious difference. The depositions are clearly the major source concerning the outrages which occurred in the winter of 1641-42, to although in many cases they are probably more revealing concerning the structural grammar of early modern atrocity reportage than of actual events. It is through these documents that the social impact of violence in the 1640s has been most intensively studied. The politics of atrocity, dwelling on the violation of Protestant bodies, sedulously cultivated by sensationalist literature, ultimately reaped their reward with the Cromwellian invasion. Revenges for the outrages perpetrated against the Protestant population of Ireland were a powerful motive for dissolving the inhibitions which had restricted the nature of warfare in England during the 1640s. The saints of the English Revolution were also inured to some extent to the excessive death occasioned by conquest, by the strength of their religious convictions, convictions buttressed by a close knowledge of the biblical slaughters inflicted by the chosen people on their unrighteous enemies. So Cromwell's famous account of the taking of Drogheda foregrounds the death of one particular antagonist who was heard to call, God damn me, God confound me, I burn, I burn, to the evident satisfaction of the author. For here the actual physical reality of his death by fire can also be seen as a statement of the eternal punishment for which he was destined or predestined, with his last words thus elegantly functioning as both statement and prophecy. The three bloodiest confrontations of the Cromwellian War all took place in towns at Drogheda, Wexford and Clonmel. Consequently, the bodies of the slain were necessarily dealt with in the immediate aftermath of the event. Such was not the case, however, concerning a number of battles during the immediately preceding Confederate period. And it is to these battles that I would like to turn for the remainder of the paper, and in particular to the battles of Ben Burb, 1646, and Dungan's Hill, 1647, and their treatment in the aphorismical discovery of treasonable faction, one of the more unjustly neglected texts um, of, 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 of the early modern period. Um, the chief reason for the neglect of the aphorismical discovery is because its author has the rather unlikely thesis that the Earl and later Marquess of Ormond, Digby, um, and others in, um, in the royalist government were actually secret parliamentarian stooges whose uh, goal during the 1640s was to betray Ireland to the English Parliament. Um, since that's a rather unlikely thesis, there's been a neglect of the text itself, but it is a mine of information which is, can be found nowhere else. 
The battles of Ben Burb and Dungan's Hill, unlike Drogheda and Wexford, which were clear steps along the way of the decisive Cromwellian juggernaut, were battles which determined nothing. Owen O'Neill's victory at Ben Burb led to no great advances, nor did Michael Jones' contrary time for Parliament the following year. No major territory was gained as a result. In fact, on both occasions, the, the victorious army more or less disintegrated shortly afterwards. Consequently, each of the battles resists assimilation into a teleological explanation, a narrative of explanation of either disaster or triumph, thus foregrounding the fact of a slaughter rather than attaching any glib meaning to it. As battles, these are battles of the psalm, if you like, rather than D-Day, um, part of a, a, a repetitive narrative of, of death and destruction rather than something which leads to um, a, a finality and a, and a new beginning. Importantly also for the paper in hand, the corpses of the slain seem to have been left on the battlefield, although they were probably comprehensively looted. There is a chilling description of the dead naked bodies at Ben Burb, which from a distance looked like a great herd of small cattle. The fact that both battles led to thousands of casualties left piled upon each other in two separate rural fields resulted in the creation of two impermanent, but by no means evanescent, monuments to death, actually composed of corpses. The anonymous author of the aphorismical discovery, that highly individual account of the 1640s, which offers the advantage of an insight into the relatively less well-explored mindset of the native Irish population, considers both of these battlefield scenes, but the very different ways in which this is done within 60 pages in the text is extremely striking. The hero of the narrative of the aphorismical discovery is Ongro Neil, the victor of Ben Burb, and the deaths at that encounter were overwhelmingly Protestants, chiefly Scots, but the text insists also on an English presence. Since this is a victory for his party, the author's tone in considering the corpses is mocking and blackly humorous. The theme is the humiliation of the corpse, both in itself and as the cause of humiliation for those who grieve it. The author's methodology is to give a long prose expansion of a description of the scene uh, in a verse of poetry, with the verse itself then following both the prose description and the verse are on the handout, but I'll just give the verse here, which is probably one of the most disgusting verses ever penned in Ireland, I think. Whilst near Ben Burb, three diverse nations fought, and thundering mar- Mars to rage their captains brought, the English, Irish and Scottish wives could not discern their loves that lost their lives. And when the mangled face could not be known, they turned the stripped dead bodies up and down. The tail behind made known the English race. The blue chopped yard berayed the Scottish face. But where they found none such nor such strange sign, the Irish woman said, that man is mine. The English tale is evidently evidently a reference to excrement, according to Fines Morrison. Shite Greeks was a common Irish insult for the English, which testified to an ethnic difference in diet. The blue chopped yard is evidently a circumcised penis. The poem, or indeed song, for it was the air of blue bonnet and bobtail, itself a jibe against the Covenanters, evidently delighted in the notion of Englishness and Scottishness being reduced and betrayed by excrement and a barbed penis. The sexualisation of the scene is heightened by the portrayal of the various wives examining the naked bodies to find their husbands. And the women themselves are humiliated by being forced to appear at the private parts of different men to identify, um, to identify their husbands. The verse resonates with one of the episodes in the depositions where the bodies of murdered Protestant men and women were laid out as if copulating. It transposes to dead soldiers the kind of humiliation which the king of convicted criminals 
would have experienced in watching the exposure of the corpses of familial members. The politics of these particular dead bodies is the politics of triumphalism, chiefly directed at a Protestant target, but secondarily with its black humour mocking the grieving women of whatever nationality. It represents a denial of the rights of vulnerability to compassionate treatment, whether that vulnerability is the physical nakedness of the corpse in death or the emotional dignity of grief. It also celebrates the stripping of identity. If burial and commemoration traditionally establishes an identity for the dead, the indiscriminate massing of unrecognisable bodies frustrates such a process. The identity of the dead soldiers is symbolically and celebratory reduced to their excrement and chopped yards. The vast majority of those who died at Dundon's Hill were Irish, and the author of the aphorismical discovery adopts a considerably different tone to the mound of corpses left abandoned in this particular field. Once again, he opts to present the scene through a third-party mouthpiece, but here he chooses the oration of Owen Neil himself. Some months after the disaster of the Confederate Leinster Army at Dungan's Hill, O'Neill seems to have consciously chosen to lead his own Ulster troops to consider the great mortality not yet interred and disfigured by volatile and other wild beasts. Faced with this grisly sight, he urged his soldiers not to lose heart. The defeat he ascribed, a view which modern military historians have endorsed, to the poor positioning and choice of battlefield by the army's leadership, his own rival, Thomas Preston, this in turn derived from two factors, one being the lack of purity in their hearts, it was their perjury and self-factional combination which had opened the way to the triumph of the enemy's tyranny, craft and cruelty. The second, of course, was divine providence. Touching on, on your themes here, um, in classical uh, fashion, uh, he detected the reasons for God turning from the Catholic army in the sins of its leadership. O'Neill then asked his troops to consider who were the corpses who offer themselves now so contemptible unto their view. The answer was, none other than such as relieved you in your need, helped you in your dangers, assisted you in your travails and perilous counters. Those are your friends and allies, your confederates and associates, your special friends and kinsmen, your flesh and blood. You are the relic of those, the only pledges of both their revenge and delivery. The insistence on the identity of the dead, the re-establishment of the identity of the dead, is the exact opposite of the de-identification of the corpses of Ben Berg. Rather than the mocking distances created towards the bodies of the previous battle, this oration, which the author places in the general's mouth, emphasises the kinship between the slaughtered corpses and the living soldiers, and emphasises the duties of the living to the dead, both by revenging their defeat, but also, I think probably, as a living and prayerful community which can contribute to their deliverance from purgatory. The sense of kinship with the dead was reinforced by the grim message that what had befallen the slain of Dungan's Hill would happen also to the soldiers of the Ulster army. If they ever fell into the hands of these executioners, this or such another will be your end. As ironically it was to be, um, of the Ulster army was destroyed after Omron Neil's death. O'Neill is portrayed as finishing the oration by urging his soldiers to never forget the memory of these slaughtered Jews, a phrase significantly which the author himself uses mockingly in his own paragraph on Ben Burb. The political men message of this particular mountain of the slain is therefore diametrically opposed to that of Ben Burb. Rather than mocking distance, it is the kinship of the living and the dead which is emphasised. Identity is restored rather than denied. The dead become figures demanding duties of those who still survive evoking sympathy and commiseration and commitment.
As a text, therefore, the aphorismical discovery meditates on two separate slaughters, but treats them in entirely different ways. At one level, this is entirely logical. One mountain of corpses are basically those of enemies, while the others are of allies and friends. But the different, different treatment does demonstrate the iron logic of the ethnic and sectarian hostility, which was embedded in 1640s Ireland. Even the bodies of the dead were constricted to bear arms within that political configuration. And that a separate space was not available for the dig- dignity and honour of the slain is a significant indication of the fissures which had come to divide and alienate the separate populations of that island. Of, that, of the island. In, this, in that sense, the politics of the dead bodies was a continuation of the politics of the living. We hope you enjoyed this historyhope.ie podcast. You can find many more podcasts by visiting the historyhope.ie website.